Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, as I mentioned, uh, this is the last day of April. Tomorrow is May, so summer is coming. That's a good thing. Hopefully it warms up. The weather turns very nice here. But it's nice in other places. Did you know that there's a place named Paradise Island in the Bahamas? Nassau Paradise Island. According to advertisement, you can walk on white sand beaches and swim in turquoise blue water. You can walk trails. You can swim. You can golf. You can just relax. How's that sound? Well, as inviting as that may be or not, the reality is that most people don't actually live there on Paradise Island. They only visit there because most of us are very keenly aware that life on earth is not a paradise. In fact, even the people who do live on Nassau, Paradise Island, the Bahamas are confronted with that reality that it's not really paradise because people get sick there. People are diagnosed with cancer there. People drown in the waters there. And people who live there are involved in fatal traffic accidents. All of those combining to impress upon them the reality that it's not really paradise. But still, don't we all long for a place called paradise where suffering and evil don't exist at all? But we want to know, is there a paradise somewhere? And if there is, where is it? And how do we get there? But well, we do learn from the lips of Jesus himself that there is indeed a paradise. But we don't get there by cruise ship. We don't, get through, we don't get there through airplane. We can only get there by him and through him. And we learn of this because our Savior Jesus extends the promise of paradise to a converted sinner. Our saving Christ extends this promise of paradise to a converted sinner. But this happens on the most unlikely of platforms where we learn of this. We learn about it on the cross where Jesus and a thief exchange words in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. I'm actually, just to give us some context, going to begin in verse 32. Um, So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 23. We'll begin our reading at verse 32, but we'll be emphasizing verses 39 through 43. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate one close to you in one of the seats in front of you. And our text is found on page 515 of those uh, Bibles in your seats. So Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Let's stand now for the reading of God's word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. We hear three sets of words in this exchange between Jesus and this thief, this robber, this criminal. First, we hear words of repentance, and then we hear words of faith, and then we hear words of salvation. Let's begin by looking at these words of repentance. We read that Jesus is crucified in between two criminals. We learn from the other gospel accounts that they're robbers, they're thieves, one on his right and one on his left. And just as Jesus had lived his life in the midst of sinners, he also dies, unsurprisingly, between and in the midst of sinners. And it appears from other gospel accounts, particularly the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, that both of these robbers were at one time reviling and mocking Jesus on the cross. And one of the criminals continues here in verse 39 saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Of course, it's one of these ironic misunderstandings of someone in scripture. This thief asks something that is impossible because if Jesus were to save himself, he would not be able to save them. And if he doesn't save himself, that's the only way he can save them in the deepest way that they need to be saved. But if we keep listening, we can hear a change of heart in the other thief. He has a change of heart. Now, did Jesus' prayer of forgiveness for his enemies, for those who were crucifying, did that have some kind of impact on this thief? Did it impact the thief with the patience in which Jesus suffered the crucifixion, not responding to the insults by insulting back, as Peter tells us in his letter? We don't know. We don't know what prompted this change of heart, but what we do know is grace is operating in the heart of this robber, in this thief, and this becomes evident in his words. Words of repentance. First, we see that he rebukes the other criminal for the words that he's using. Do you not fear God? Notice that at this point, it's not the punishment that this thief thinks should be feared. It's not even really death itself. But do you not fear God? There seems to be this sense of the holiness and righteousness of God before whom they must both appear and give an account. He seems to have a sense that he is morally accountable to the judge of all the earth. And not only is he aware of his accountability, he seems also to be aware that he has failed to meet the moral standard of the creator and the judge of all the earth because not only does he rebuke the other criminal, he admits his own guilt. He admits the justice of the sentence of death upon him in verse 41. We are receiving the due reward for our deeds. He owns his sinfulness. No excuses offered here. No words of self-justification for any of his actions. He admits he's guilty. He's a criminal deserving 
the condemnation that he is receiving. But at the same time where he admits his own guilt, he affirms Jesus that no basis for condemnation can be found in him. This man has done nothing wrong, he says. Now this thief is a representative sinner in a lot of ways. He's a representative sinner of all of us because we all mock and revile God by our sins and by our rebellion. We mock that authority of God as if we were our own authorities. And we're all thieves and robbers of his glory, taking it from him and keeping it for ourselves or giving it to something else in creation when it belongs only and solely to him. We are also morally accountable before the judge of all the earth and we have also failed to meet that moral standard so that we are criminals justly condemned to the sentence of death. If you want to find where you are in the text, you're the criminal. You're the criminal. But which one? You see, not only did Jesus live in the midst of sinners and die in the midst of sinners, he actually lived as a friend of sinners. And we'll see as we move forward that he dies as a friend for sinners. So the question that confronts us this morning, one of the questions is, are you a friend to Jesus? Are you a friend to Jesus? And one of the ways that we can go about assessing that and answering that is considering how you respond to him. Is there repentance in your heart? And is there repentance in your words? Listen, there, there is no way to paradise except by walking this path of repentance. There is no access to paradise apart from repentance. Admitting your guilt and passing judgment on yourself with God. That's one of my seminary professors used to say, accusing yourself, taking sides against yourself with God. Are you willing to own your sinfulness your guilt, the justice of your condemnation in hell for your crimes? Because here's the truth. You will not and cannot sense your need for a Savior until you do business with the reality of your sin and what those sins deserve. You will not and cannot sense your need for a Savior without a deep sense of your sin and the condemnation that you deserve in judgment before God for those sins, like this thief does. Now, you might be thinking that, do we really have words of repentance here? I mean, isn't all we really know from these words that the thief is a deist or a theist? He believes in God. He believes that there's a God. Do you not fear God? And that he has a morally sensitive conscience. He feels that he's not perfect morally. But that doesn't make one a Christian. Yeah, that's right. That doesn't necessarily mean that one is repented. That's correct, too. What we would hope to see is some kind of fruit of repentance. Well, the likely fruit that we would see from this thief hanging on a cross is a change of his attitude and a change of his words. He can't do much else. He's hanging on a cross. But that's exactly what we do see, a transformation of his words. He turns from words of mocking and reviling. And not only does he turn from using those words, he replaces those words with words of faith. And that's what we see second, words of faith. We see this in verse 42. Not only does the thief address the other thief, he addresses Jesus directly. And he says, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. He offers a prayer of sorts to Jesus. But this incense of the prayer is still offered in this filthy vial. The bottle hasn't been rinsed clean, right? It's, it's coming from this heart of this wretched, sinful robber next to Jesus who deserves his condemnation. And this, this speaking of the kingdom probably, probably is not real accurate, his understanding of the kingdom. The words he uses are not eloquent, and the hands that offer this prayer are bloody and crucified, not even folded as we would expect in a prayer. And in addition, can, can these words really even be trusted? I mean, can, we, can we trust this guy? He was just railing at Jesus moments before, according to the, us, the other gospel accounts. And were we, are we really supposed to believe this scoundrel has had a change of heart now that he's at death's door? I mean, don't we tend to be suspicious and cynical about these kinds of deathbed conversions? These last moment conversions, these foxhole conversions as they're sometimes called. Yeah, we tend to be skeptical of those things. And so we would warn Jesus not to be too quickly fooled by the words of this guy. But while we might be slow to trust these words of faith, it doesn't seem that Jesus is. By Jesus' response to this thief, as we'll get to in a second, we're almost forced to conclude that these words of faith are real. They're genuine. They're true. And that ought not surprise us because just think about these words. Think about these words. Yeah, he, he might have clouded ideas about what Jesus' kingdom is, but the disciples were with him for three years and they have clouded ideas about exactly what the nature of the kingdom is. And we still have foggy ideas about what the nature of the kingdom is, particularly when it comes to how it's going to be consummated, the timing and the details about when Jesus returns and how all that's going to unfold. But this he does demonstrate clearly. However clouded his ideas are, he believes that Jesus has a kingdom. And think about that. He believes that Jesus has a kingdom in the midst of circumstances which seem to cast all doubt as to whether such a kingdom even existed. He believes in this kingdom and speaks of this kingdom when Jesus appeared incapable of saving himself or anyone else and bringing them in to any kind of kingdom. Jesus is dying on a cross next to him when he speaks these words. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus is weak and disgraced. His crucifixion speaks against the reality of this sign over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, doesn't look much like a king having a kingdom. His crucifixion seems to speak against any divine favor that he enjoys. He appears to be cursed because anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. And yet he speaks of this kingdom that only the eyes of faith could see. And it seems again at this point that this particular thief is not interested in being released from his physical pain and suffering. He's interested in being a participant in the kingdom. Note also that he speaks of Jesus' authority. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The kingdom is yours. You're the king of the kingdom even though your throne is a cross and even though your crown it's made of thorns. These are words of faith. But he says more. He also admits his need for mediation. 
He needs Jesus to vouch for him. He's a rebel and a rogue, and he's praying for grace because he senses that he can't merit entrance into this kingdom on his own. He's already admitted his guilt and his just condemnation. So he recognizes he needs somebody to intercede for him. He needs somebody to speak words on his behalf. He needs somebody to stand in his corner if he's, particip- if he's going to participate in this kingdom. So this dying thief turns to a dying Messiah and asks him to vouch for him in his kingdom. Those are remarkable words of faith. Those are supernatural words of faith. Here's what John Calvin says about the thief in these words. How clear was the vision of the eyes which could, see, which could thus see in death, life, in ruin, majesty, in shame, glory, in defeat, victory, in slavery, royalty. I question if ever since the world began there has been so bright an example of faith. Words of repentance we hear. Words of faith we hear. But we also hear words of salvation. When the thief finishes speaking, Jesus now speaks. But we don't hear words of correction or reproof to this thief, to this robber, to this criminal. No words suggesting the thief's false hopes of deliverance at this late hour. No, it's you're too late. No, I'm too busy bearing the sins of my people, too busy bearing the sins of the world. Only words of hope and salvation extended by Jesus. We see them in verse 43. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today is the day of your deliverance and your entrance into bliss, not the day of your destruction, not the day of your disaster. Today you will be with me in paradise. No mention of purgatory here. Just this promise of paradise extended by Jesus. But notice that as yet, this promise of paradise is in a kingdom still unseen. And Jesus isn't gonna bring this thief down from the cross and deliver him from his crucifixion. What he will promise is to bear him and to bear his sins into paradise itself in the life to come which should remind us that when we place our faith in Jesus, that does not mean that all of our trouble, all of our trials, all of our problems, and all of our pain will disappear and go away. Jesus doesn't give us that assurance in this life. But what we do have assurance of when we place our faith in Jesus is life after the grave. A life in paradise after the grave. Jesus speaks with certainty here as well. That's why we can have the assurance of that. Truly, assuredly. The Greek word there is amen, from which we get the English word amen. And it means that these words are reliable, they're stable, they're true, they're certain, they can be depended upon. Truly, he says, assuredly, as certain as you are going to die on this cross, today you will be with me. In paradise and the reason Jesus can speak with such certainty is because he's the one who possesses the very keys of the gates of paradise himself and so when he utters these words truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise that's it it's as if he is saying yes with these bloodied hands with this blood that atones for your sins 
I will open to you and to all of my unworthy people who repent of their sins and put their trust in me. With these hands, I will open to you the gates of paradise that you may enter everlasting life. Those are the words promising paradise and what a peaceful chord is struck here for all who are looking for hope at the door of death. Even when it's evident that there's no time left for reform, no time left for change, no time to undo the wretched things you've done, Jesus still offers hope. Jesus still offers hope. This believing thief apparently had no moral life to speak of before he was crucified, and he's not going to have any moral life to speak of after he's crucified. He's not going to be able to walk any paths of righteousness because his feet are fixed to a plank of wood. He's not going to be able to do any good works with his hands because his hands are bound to the cross. He's not going to be able to make good any resolutions. He's not going to be able to make any promises to live a better life because in a few hours or at most a few days, he's going to be dead. And so is all hope for salvation lost? No. There's hope with Jesus, the Savior, because his grace is boundless. His grace is boundless to sinners who repent and believe. And so if his grace could reach this thief on the cross at this moment, who is beyond the reach of God's grace through Christ? The person who's had an abortion? Is she beyond the reach of God's grace? No, not beyond the reach of God's grace. How about the person with a sexually promiscuous past? Beyond the reach of God's grace? No, not beyond the reach of God's grace. How about the drug addict? How about the person who's been dishonest financially and swindled people out of money? How about the person struggling with same-sex attraction? How about someone dealing with the shame of divorce? No, not beyond the reach of God's grace. But what about you? What about you and all of your sins in thought, word, and deed? All the things you've done and all the things you've failed to do beyond the reach of God's grace? No. If this thief on the cross is not beyond the reach of God's grace, then you're not beyond the reach of that grace and I'm not beyond the reach of that grace. Of course, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that the thief would not have lived a life of moral reform after his conversion if he could have. We need to be clear that repentance involves the renunciation of former sins, turning from them and leaving them and endeavoring after new obedience, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. We also need to to realize that the evidence of a true and genuine faith are good works. Good works are the evidence, the necessary evidence of genuine faith. But it's not this thief's progress in sanctification that forms the ground or the basis upon which he can tread into paradise. It's not that. It's not his progress in sanctification. It's not even his orthodox belief. It's not his detailed doctrinal theology. We don't even know how much he knows theologically. So what is the basis by which he can enter into paradise? How can Jesus be so certain as to say, Amen. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
It's on the basis of his own work for sinners. It's on the basis of his atoning blood. It's on the basis of his mediation. It's on the basis of his perfect righteousness imputed to sinners by faith. It's on the basis of him paying the wages of sin through his death on the cross. That's where our certainty is. Even the faith and repentance that we exercise are gifts that are purchased for us by the work of Jesus. But of course, we shouldn't be tempted then to think that this exchange alleviates the suffering of Jesus. It doesn't alleviate his suffering. There may be joy in heaven among the angels for this one sinner who has repented. There may be joy in Jesus' heart, but Jesus still has to pay for the sins of now this thief next to him. He has to drink the cup of the Father's wrath for the sins of this thief just like he has to drink the cup of the Father's wrath to drink down hell itself for your sins and to my sins if we're going to enter into paradise. He has to pay the membership fees. He has to pay the dues required for admission or no one enters into paradise. So it's almost like Jesus answers, yes, I will remember you, but I will do more than remember you. I must do more than remember you. I will bear your sins in the hell of my Father's wrath so that you might enter into paradise. You can ask a lot of people how you get to heaven and you'll hear a variety of answers. Some will just dismiss the question. There is no heaven. This, is, this life is all there is. Others will say you get there by default because God never sent anybody to hell. Others will say you got to keep the Ten Commandments. Others will say you just have to live a decent moral life, whatever that means. I mean, that's just not being too bad, not doing anything too wicked, making sure the good deeds in your life outweigh the bad deeds. But here's the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace is that the promise of paradise is extended to us, not through anything that we have done or can do, but it's given to us only on the basis of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's it. This thief on the cross demonstrates so clearly that we are not saved by our own good works, but we are justified in the sight of God only on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. You know, if the only words that we can offer to dying people, and really, if we think about it, that's all we're ever talking to, dying people. If the only words we can offer to dying people are words exhorting them to moral improvement, we're not proclaiming the gospel of grace. Repent. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus and believe in him by faith and you'll be saved. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. There's no catch. But there's also no other way to paradise. There's no other way to paradise. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. There is a paradise, and Jesus is the way. But Jesus isn't just the way to paradise. He is paradise. What makes paradise paradise is today you will be with me in paradise. The promise is him, the fountainhead of our joy and our delight and our satisfaction. 
This thief that we read about in Luke chapter 23, he's with Jesus now. His spirit is with Jesus now in a state of provisional blessedness. I don't know where his body is. I don't know what happened to his body. But his body will be raised again when Jesus comes back to consummate the kingdom and establish the new heavens and the new earth. He'll be there as a trophy of grace. Will you join him? Will you be there? May God give us grace to have repentance in our hearts so that we can speak words of repentance. May God grant us grace to place faith in our hearts that we may speak words of faith. And may God give us grace that we may enjoy the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for his people. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, this is, this is good news for us when we look at a text like this. We are unworthy, sinful, rebellious people who are morally accountable before you and have failed to meet your moral standard of perfect righteousness and holiness. And yet, you come to us in grace. You send to us your son, Jesus, to go to a cross and pay for our sins that you might open the doors of paradise for us. Lord, give us thankful hearts. Lord, we know that our feet and our hands are not pinned to a cross, and so you call us to a life of newness, of reform, of faith, of fruitfulness. So by your spirit, may you produce that in us, but may we stand on the ground before you of the completed and perfect work of Jesus on our behalf. That's our security. That's the good news that we cling to, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.